Today's reading is from Psalm 74. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased of old, the tribe you redeemed as your inheritance, Mount Zion, where you dwelt. Pick your way through these everlasting ruins, all this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Your foes roared in this place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved panelling with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, We will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no miraculous signs, no prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. But you, O God, are my king from old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the water. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, O Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamour of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. Well, welcome to our Boxing Day service. Today marks uh, the start of a four-week summer series on the Psalms. Uh, where we'll look at such variable topics as how we should pray, um, how we should respond to this life that God has given us, how he speaks to us through creation and his word. But today uh, we're looking at Psalm 74 that's just been read for us. And so let me pray uh, that God will help us as we come to his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your living word. We thank you that it divides even heart and soul And we pray that you might help us as we uh, hear your voice this morning in your word, that we might respond rightly uh, with repentance and faith. Help us to live in the light of it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the 20-year American war in Afghanistan came to a tragic and chaotic end in August of uh, this past year. The U.S. military departed the country on August 30, leaving Afghanistan in the Taliban's hands. And as the last evacuation flight departed, it left behind at least 100,000 people, by one estimate, who might be eligible for US visas. A ferocious summertime offensive had delivered victory to the Taliban on August 15, hours after the president, Ashraf Ghani, had fled the country. Taliban leaders took his place in the presidential palace, driving tens of thousands of people to the country's borders. Others flooded to the international airport 
Airport in Kabul, where crowds scrambled to be part of the evacuations of foreign nationals and their Afghan allies. And days of chaos at the airport were then punctuated by a suicide attack on August 26 that killed as many as 180 people, including 13 American troops. It was one of the deadliest attacks of the war. And the collapse of the Afghan government after the United States had spent billions to support the Afghan security forces was a crushing and violent end to the US military mission in what has been America's longest war. And that combat mission reckoned with American casualties, a ruthless enemy, and an often confounding Afghan partner, as well as a nominal ally, Pakistan, which in reality supplied and supported the Taliban, which provided the militants a safe haven. Well, the United States had planned to leave behind about 650 troops to secure its embassy in Kabul, but the sudden and shocking Taliban victory forced the embassy into a swift and panic shut down as staffers shredded and burned sensitive documents before a makeshift embassy compound was set up in the airport. And with Taliban gunmen controlling the streets of Kabul and other cities, dread set in across the capital and elsewhere. And in Kabul, Taliban gunmen went then from door to door in some neighborhood searching for anyone who had supported the government or the American effort. And despite public promises by the Taliban leaders of a more moderate approach to governing, restrictions have been imposed on women and the Taliban have cracked down on independent journalists and especially Christians. Well, this morning as we reflect on Psalm 74, we read about a low point for God's people Israel. And in such tragic moments, either in our modern day or for the people of Israel, Moments of loss and ongoing fear, when things are in ruins and the future looks bleak, how should we pray? But that, perhaps that has been your experience over the last couple of years. You're struggling to know how to pray in the midst of this pandemic. And that's the big question that we're going to consider today. How should we pray when things are hard? How are we to pray when things are hard? The first answer to that question this morning is this, that we should cry out. We should cry out to the Lord. Notice again what is recorded in verses 1 to 3. Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the nation you purchased long ago, the people of your inheritance, whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary. Now the writer Asaph was uh, the founder of one of the temple choirs, we learn elsewhere in 1 Chronicles 25. And in the first 11 verses of this psalm, uh, several problems are raised as Asaph cries out to the Lord. Firstly, there is the problem of God's wrath because the context is the time of the exile following the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And this had taken place because of the sin of the people who had turned away from God to worship idols. This was a national disaster, which the book of Lamentations responds to in much further detail. But the words in the opening three verses here are driven by faith more than doubt. And so the psalmist has a whole series of questions as he cries out to God. It's not a questioning of the punishment of Israel's sin, but of the apparent finality of it all. You know, is the hard time never going to end? 
And so in verse 2, the writer asks God to remember that he purchased Israel long ago, referring to their rescue from Egypt. And he reminds him that they are his inheritance and that he dwelt with his people. And really, this is almost a summary of Israel's history to this point, coming out through the Exodus and being settled in the land, God present with his people at the temple. But secondly, there's the problem of place, because God's temple now has been destroyed in verses 3 to 8. It represented God's presence. And notice the reference to the sanctuary or the temple that symbolized God's presence in verse 3. The temple was still lying in ruins at this point. From verse 4 onwards, a detailed account is given of the pillaging of the temple by the Babylonian army. And it was obviously such a shocking and traumatic time that these events are indelibly marked in his memory. There's the roar or the shouts of the soldiers. There's the setting up of the army's banners in the holy place, the smashing of the carved panelling of, of the temple with axes, the burning of the sanctuary eventually to the ground. Now, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that the Babylonians removed all the gold objects before burning down the building. And then thirdly, there's the problem of God's silence, the delay of any restoration of the people to the land. So notice what he records in verses 9 to 11 again. We are given no signs from God. No prophets are left, and none of us knows how long this will be. How long will the enemy mock you, God? Will the foe revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them. You see, the lack of any sign of God's favor, let alone any word through a prophet, were even deeper wounds than that of the enemy. Historically, this cry for help could well be that of the struggling community left in Jerusalem after the deportation of most of the population to Babylon. We know from our vantage point that the how long of verse 10 had an answer. It would be 70 years before the exiles to Jerusalem, uh, exiles to Babylon would be restored to Jerusalem. But for the writer at the time, this long period of silence from God must have felt like forever. And as we apply this first point, we have to acknowledge the challenge of our experiences in this life. We can often find ourselves asking how long or why, as Asaph does in verse 10 and 11. And the encouragement from the psalmist here is to take those questions to God, to cry out to him in the hard times. We need to grasp that Christ understands us and suffered greatly as he approached the cross. It's not like God is unaware of suffering. In Matthew 26, verses 36 to 38, we read, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. You see, however dark our experience may be, it does pale in comparison with Christ's suffering as he approached and then experienced the agony of being forsaken at the cross. And Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 remind us of the importance of this truth. For us today, when the writer records, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, let us then, verse 16, approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, not only do we have an understanding, a sympathetic high priest in Jesus, but we're encouraged to bring our struggles before the Father through him. The importance of prayer can never be overstated. And so as difficult as it may seem, we need to come before God constantly when things are hard. So often our natural response when we're facing trials, when we're down, is to withdraw from our relationships. But at such a time, we really need to run to God in prayer, to cry out to him. And that brings us to a second answer to our question of how we should pray when things are hard. Secondly, we should remember our creator and redeemer. We should remember our creator and redeemer. So notice again what is recorded from verse 12. But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Well, verse 12, the start of this section that I've just read, is the turning point for the psalm with the opening words, but God is my king. Suddenly the psalmist shifts from the plural to the singular and he turns to the creative power of his heavenly king along with the salvation that he can provide. There's a reflection here on God's track record as both the creator and the redeemer. Asaph affirms in verses 16 and 17 that God put in place the sun and the moon, the boundaries of the earth, the seasons. The inference here is that God's sovereign power is such that there is hope for a new day. If God has done all these wonderful things in the past, then he can act again to restore his people and the city of Jerusalem and its temple. Their earthly enemies and, and their havoc now look small against God who brings the whole creation into being with a word and directs its elements and then saves his people. The reference to salvation again points to the great act of the exodus from Egypt. And if God could save his people then against the superpower of the day, then he can bring them back from Babylon as well. The current experience is, is just not the full picture. And so the psalmist points us to God's power to change things, to create afresh, to redeem. Now again, as we apply this second point to ourselves today, uh, we need to turn from our experience to our faithful God, just like the psalmist. So often we are dwelling on what we're going through and we fail to trust God's promises because we're overwhelmed with our circumstances. But we need to express our faith in God's sovereign plans, even when we cannot see why things are unfolding the way that they are. I think a great example of this in uh, recent history is Horatio Spafford. He faced a number of tragic events in the space of just a few years in the late 19th century. The first two were the death of his four-year-old son from scarlet fever, and then the great Chicago fire of 1871, which ruined him financially. His business interests were further hit by a large economic downturn on the back of that in 1873, 
at which time he planned to travel to England with his family on a ship to help his friend D.L. Moody with his upcoming evangelistic campaigns. But in a late change of plan, he sent the family ahead on the ship uh, while he was delayed on business uh, as he still sorted out uh, issues around insurance following the Great Fire in Chicago, and he was going to follow them shortly after. But while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship with his wife and four daughters on board sank rapidly after a collision with another vessel, uh, the Loch Urn, and all four of Spathard's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him a heartbreaking telegram which began with the words, Saved Alone. And shortly afterwards, as Spafford travelled to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write the words which are of what has now become a famous hymn as his ship passed the spot where his four daughters had passed away. He wrote, When peace like a river attend of my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. Some have argued that It Is Well has since become the most widely used hymn of consolation in the Christian church. And the reason it's comforting is that it points to God's presence and his promises, even in the hardest of trials. Christ knows our frailty. He laid down his life for us. And as we await the day when our faith shall be sight, as Spafford wrote, when we will be with him in heaven and all God's promises to us will be fulfilled, we are to keep trusting, we are to keep remembering our Creator and Redeemer. Well, that brings us to our third and final answer to our question about how to pray when things are hard. Finally, we should press our case. We should press our case. Notice again what is stated in verses 18 to 21. Remember how the enemy has mocked you, Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant, because haunts of violence fill the dark places of this land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Well, notice that the psalmist appeals to God's upholding of his name in verses 18 to 21 here, to God's compassion on his people in verse 19, and in verse 20, God's covenant with Israel. Firstly, out of those, the concern for God's name to be praised and not reviled comes to the forefront. In contrast to the mocking and the reviling of God's name by their enemies, who are foolish in verse 18, there is the anticipated praise of God's name by the poor and needy if their oppression and disgrace is removed in verse 21. And then secondly, compassion on his people is appealed to by the psalmist in verse 19 as he presses his case before the Lord, pointing to God's gracious and faithful character that he 
won't allow him to forget them. And then thirdly, he strengthens his call to God to remember as he highlights the covenant promises that God has made in verse 20. First given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and then reinforced under Moses at Sinai, developed further in the promises to King David. The writer really presses his case confidently through this section because he's appealing to God's name, to God's covenant, to God's cause, not to his own worthiness. He's appealing to God's track record and how his actions in the past can be repeated in the present. Now, as we conclude and apply this final principle to ourselves, we too are to press our case before God as Christ himself calls us to be persistent in prayer. Remember in Luke 11 where he is teaching his disciples to pray and he urges them to ask God for their needs continually with the shameless audacity of a man knocking on a friend's door at midnight for food and not giving up until he answers, persisting until he comes to the door even though he doesn't want to. And Jesus concludes in verse 9, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But often we don't persist in prayer like that. We don't press our case as the psalmist does. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous London pastor of the 19th century, once said about prayer and our need to persist in bringing our concerns before God, Prayer pulls the rope down below, and the great bell rings above in the ears of God. Some scarcely stir the bell, for they pray so languidly. Others give only an occasional jerk at the rope, But he who communicates with heaven is the man who grasps the rope boldly and pulls continuously with all his might. Well, sometimes it's not so much our laziness as in Spurgeon's example, but perhaps our lack of trust in God or our limited understanding of his generous fatherly care towards us, his children, that makes us so reticent to pray. One writer reflected on her own struggles in this regard, stating, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking for any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. Well, today we have considered how we should pray when things are hard. We're about to enter a new year after a difficult couple of years. And as we reflect on the writer's example in Psalm uh, Psalm 74, we have seen that we should firstly cry out to the Lord, that secondly we should remember our Creator and Redeemer, and that lastly we should press our case being persistent in prayer. Well, I hope to emulate Asaph in all circumstances, as we approach this new year of 2022, but especially when life is hard. And my prayer is that you will all do the same. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Asaph in this psalm. At even the lowest point in Israel's history, while the exile was ongoing, that he cried out to you, that he remembered you and all that you'd done in creation, in redeeming your people, and that he persisted in prayer, that he pressed his case to you. Lord, help us to take on this attitude, understanding 
the wonderful access that we have to come before you because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that through him we have ready access because of our forgiveness full and free. And so we pray, Lord, that you might cause us to be a people that are prayerful this year, that we might bring our needs before you, especially for anyone who is facing really hard things, even at this moment. Help us not to be those that shrink back, that run away from you, but rather that we run to you and bring our needs before you each and every day. For we ask this in Christ's powerful name. Amen.